Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Content Clearinghouse. I'm Brett Chisholm. I'm Josh Evans. And on today's episode, I'm going to talk about the most important man that you've never heard of, Andre Jacques Garnerin. This is a very special piece of early skydiving history for all you parachuting fans out there. And no, I'm not talking about the infamous Eiffel Tower death jump of 1912. I'm talking about the first successful modern parachute jump in all of history. After that, Josh is really going to tickle and titillate my love for sci-fi, and he's also going to stimulate my fear of getting me to say something potentially racist on the podcast. I love this content that he's covering. It's a movie that taps sci-fi's potential to explore the most challenging large-scale problems that humanity faces as a species. And then it takes that and boils it down into several characters being vaporized in an electric giblet cloud. You know, something we can all relate to. We're talking about Neil Blomkamp's directorial debut masterpiece and a cornerstone of sci-fi's 2009 pinnacle, District 9. Movies, shows, and video games, podcast books, and their acclaims. Let their favorite content become yours. It's the Content Clearing House. Content Clearing House. And it starts right now. Brett, how are you? I am so tired, but I am great. I'm going to lift up my laptop and show you my views, all right? All right. Let's see it. Oh, man. You look like you're in a tropical paradise. Pretty Where good. are you right now? I'm in Singapore. So yeah. we recorded, and Ooh. then I immediately uh, went to the airport and got on an airplane and flew for eight hours, and I have not slept except for maybe like... 45 minutes on the airplane since I talked to you 24 hours ago. <laughs> wow. For the people who aren't living in our bubble, yeah, the uh, podcast from two weeks ago was actually recorded yesterday. And Brett was, <laughs> how far was that flight? Was that like uh, about six, eight know, hour flight 30, or something? 3,900 miles, eight, eight hours. Uh, this is like seven hours and 37 minutes, I think. I don't know why oh I remember God. that. Just thinking about flying, probably because you're a professional pilot. But uh, flying that much, thinking about flying that much, makes my back hurt. Just imagining it. Just the 20 minutes on a jump plane that I spend occasionally makes my back hurt. I was so Luckily, you don't yeah. have that, those same issues. I was, I was tell, telling one of the guys, we were a crew of four on this flight. And Jamie is an Aussie. He's a new hire. Uh, really neat guy. He was giving me a little bit of... Aussie culture education on the drive over here to the hotel. I learned uh, some slang and some, uh, what's the sport they play here? Rugby, some interesting like rugby uh, little facts. Anyway, um, he, I mentioned to him that I'm, I'm a long haul guy. I like the long haul flights. And he's like, I'm like a medium haul guy. Like I want to do like a four or five hour flight, but I don't know. 12 is a bit long for me. And yeah, I know how he feels. <laughs> Uh, he's not going to be flying many places other than mainland Australia with that kind of time frame. <laughs> I mean, our flight tomorrow is pretty short. Hong Kong to, or sorry, I'm in Singapore. Singapore to Hong Kong. And then after that, Hong Kong to Nagoya. So all those are pretty short. And then after that, I go from Nagoya to Cincinnati. That's a long one because you have to cross the Pacific Ocean. You're already like, you know. I don't know, six, seven hours into this flight, and then you're on the West Coast basically crossing the entire United States. That is a long flight. Oh, wow. 
Is it ever a little disconcerting to you when you're uh, 2,000 miles out to sea flying? I've only done that a couple times, like going to Hawaii, basically. And I remember feeling like just kind of, I don't know, not scared, but just a little nervous because, you know, you can look out in every direction and you see ocean as far as far as you could possibly see. And I think about how far I can see when I'm on a normal commercial flight over the land. And you can say, I feel like I can see like two states away and you're so far out to sea and just uh, makes me a little nervous. Do you ever feel like that flying those kind of lines? Um. Not particularly. We we have a little bit of a running joke um, with between the seven forty seven and the triple seven pilots. Like a lot of seven uh, four pilots will say, like, "Oh, you're going to take a light twin over an ocean." Uh, it's just kind of like a joke because they have four engines, and you bag an engine, it's pretty much a non-event. And we have a little bit more to worry about, but. My my only concern would be, you know, I mean, there's there's weather concerns, there's navigation concerns, but really, uh, I wouldn't want to fight a fire. If if there was some sort of fire on board, and you are that far away from land, there there could definitely be some problems. But uh, no, I mean, it's not something I'm like concerned about on a frequent basis. Just dip the wing in the water. You got plenty <laughs> of firefighting material all around you. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> that's where the sharks live, though. And that's that's why I'm not a pilot. <laughs> uh, All right. Yes. Well, what's new? Pretty, uh, pretty interesting. Yeah. What's new with you? Since we uh, last since talked. we recorded yesterday, yeah. nothing, nothing at all, <laughs> and nothing's happened. <laughs> now I just had a typical dad day, just uh, dropping kids off at school and taking them to dance class. Oh, nice. All right. Nothing crazy. Sounds like, On that uh, note, why don't you uh, intro the show for our new listeners, Brett? Oh, well, uh, thanks for uh, mentioning that, Josh. So I've heard we have a couple of new listeners. Welcome to the show. Um, basically, we start each show with a little bit of an off-top or it's an off-topic discussion on something that uh, one of us finds interesting. And then each week or uh, about every other week is our recording schedule these days, but we pitch one another a piece of content that we're really into and we're trying to sell each other and by extension, you, the listener on that piece of content. So it might be a book, a movie, a TV show, video game, um, all sorts of content. We've really uh, uh, we've been on a little bit of a, a TV show streak recently, but uh, there are some also pretty strange and esoteric ones there in the backlog as well. And that's pretty much the show. It's pretty awesome. We'd love to hear from our listeners as well and uh, get some recommendations for content that you love that we should check out because we are professional contentologists. We both got our degrees at Harvard, and so we know a thing or two about content. It's a real thing. It is. Don't look at it. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Well, speaking of off-top. Well, on that note. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Why don't you take us into the off-top, Brett? I've got a really good one for you. You're going to like this. So... Uh Have you ever heard of a man named Andre Jacques Garnerin? Uh, no, but you do love profiling strange people. So I'm very interested to hear about this. Well, I feel like you should have heard of this guy. He's basically the great, 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 great grandfather of doing the awesome thing that you love to do. Parachuting. Really? Oh, is this the guy that jumped off the Eiffel Tower? 
I don't think he ever jumped off the Eiffel Tower, but he is French, and he's basically the first person to ever successfully parachute. So he definitely paved oh, the way. Oh, this is not who I'm thinking of. Uh-huh. I'm thinking of, uh, I don't know who this guy is, but there's this old sepia-toned video of a man who created his very own parachute suit. It wasn't a parachute. It was like a... Oh, yeah. No, this is <laughs> not this guy. This video. Wait, wait. It was like a big... <laughs> It had like a wooden frame. It looked kind of like a, a wizard's outfit. And he was expecting to step off the Eiffel Tower and gently float down to Earth. And uh, this old, like, like hand-cranked video of him stepping off and just plummeting down and just boom, dying spectacularly <laughs> underneath the Eiffel Tower is uh, both uh, disturbing and hilarious. So I- I'll actually see if I can find that video and we'll share it in the show. Yeah, notes. totally. No, I-, I Googled it. I just found it. This is- That was Franz Richel. Re- Re- I'm guessing is how you pronounce it. Uh, it's The YouTube video is titled The Infamous Eiffel Tower Death Jump of 1912. (laughs) So that gives you both. Kind of funny. It gives you both (laughs) the place, the year, and the outcome. Uh, (laughs) And the death. (laughs) Spoiler alert. um no oh man so this this guy was more successful this guy was more successful yeah um so he was uh, a french pioneering balloonist and uh, he basically became the the modern world's first successful parachutist he was born in paris in 1769 so this way predates oh my god the eiffel tower death jump of 1912 and this guy should have known better (laughs) Honestly, it seems like it may have already been worked out a little bit by the time he jumped off the Eiffel Tower. You know, it was an age of experimentation, Josh. People were just trying things. It truly was. Seeing what stuck. So, um, Garnerin, he was really captivated by the concept of flight from a young age. He actually worked as an inspector in the French military, and he observed captive balloons being used for reconnaissance. And that's what inspired him to study ballooning and parachutes. And this concept of using a parachute has been around for a while. Leonardo da Vinci was sketching designs as early as the 15th century, but it wasn't until Garnerin's time that somebody actually attempted to use one in practice. So according to the article that I'm going to link in the show notes, Garnerin reportedly first came up with the concept of a parachute while uh, being held as a prisoner in a Hungarian prison during the French Revolution. So he was looking for a means to Hungarian escape. like a horse. <laughs> yeah. That sounds like an inside joke between you and your <laughs> your toddler daughters. <laughs> oh no, I always wanted to I always wanted to embroider a, a throw pillow. Two of them actually. One of them said Hungarian like a horse and then one of them said home is where the hobos aren't. <laughs> I just got I just got the first one. I was thinking hungry like a horse. I was thinking of like the hungry, hungry hippo. But now I got it. Wow. You got it? <laughs> yeah, I got, I got it now. Oh, man. Perfect. Um, yeah. Horses aren't known for being hungry, are they? <laughs> no, they're not. <laughs> I'm a hungry, hungry horse. <laughs> yeah, that's that game you used to play. Oh, man. I'm so tired. Okay, so... Uh, <laughs> you look delusional. <laughs> so he never parachuted out of this Hungarian prison, but this idea never left him. And he just continued with his aeronautical experimentation. And he was actually such an early adopter of hot air balloons. He was appointed 
the official aeronaut of France. I don't know what it took to get that title, but eh, pretty cool. And then uh, to be the only one. Uh, that's yeah, all it took. That's it. He's, he's the only guy. <laughs> that's probably it. Uh, so in in nineteen or sorry in seventeen ninety seven. So at around twenty eight years young, he decided it was time to complete his and pretty much history's first parachute jump. So I want you to picture this, Josh. It's a brisk afternoon in October in the heart of Paris. A crowd of awestruck onlookers gathered in Parc Moncure. Their eyes were riveted skyward, where a hydrogen balloon was ascending into the heavens. Suspended beneath that it, sound safe. <laughs> a per- peculiar contraption of silk and rope, as well as our brave hero, André Jacques Garnerin. He was there ready to etch his name into history, and hopefully not into the ground. His parachute was a uh, pretty far cry from the modern gear that you and I use today. It was uh, really simple, but pretty ingenious design. It was oh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna let me text you a picture of this because I feel like it'll make a little bit more sense here. That's good pod. Send me a picture. <laughs> yeah. I realize this I'll is. De- I'll describe it. <laughs> okay, perfect. <laughs> All right, Brett has sent me a picture. I mean, actually, that looks uh, pretty much like what I would expect of an early parachute. It's round parachute. Uh, it's suspended from a balloon, and uh, it has a basket underneath it. Okay, he hadn't got he hadn't worked out the whole concept of harnesses yet, but it's got several uh, several parachute lines running down to the basket. It looks like when it when it releases from the balloon, it just I don't want to say gently brings you down to earth because I imagine this thing be jellyfishing like a motherfucker. Uh, but uh, sounds like you know a thing I'm or two about he, parachutes. Did he survive this? Uh, so the the part first parachute jump. The part that I feel like the picture helps, and we'll post this on our Instagram page. But I think where the picture really helps is that uh, the the hydrogen balloon is tethered, and then the cord goes like through the top of the parachute and into the basket so he can stand in the basket and then cut that cord. So, yeah. So, I thought when he was done, uh-huh. he just flicked his cigarette up at the hydrogen <laughs> balloon and detonated it and then parachute down the ground. That would have been uh, the Hungarian approach, I think, is what that is. Yeah, it's, that's, <laughs> call that the Hindenburg approach. <laughs> yeah, so essentially, yeah, you're exactly right. It's a basket. It's It was uh, I, suspended beneath a, a canopy of white silk. And it kind of resembles an umbrella. And then there's there's actually a pole that's not really pictured that's holding everything closed during the ascent. And another little detail for all the sky nerds out there listening, which is pretty much all of our listeners. But apparently he was jumping a 23-foot or 7-meter silk parachute. So he climbed up to an altitude. Yeah. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, just... That's interesting that they yeah. had, they pretty much figured out silk right from the beginning because I mean I, th- I believe silk is pretty much used all the way up until the modern era until they discovered you know like lightweight uh, zero porosity fabrics that you know like canopies are built out of today nylon I'm, and it silk makes sense because it's incredibly strong and lightweight and just so so soft on your skin when you're packing it. <laughs> Do you think they? Uh repurposed all those old timey parachutes into lingerie for the French. 
Ooh, <laughs> I sure hope so. I imagine it would probably be fairly stinky though in this era. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, they they had a lot of perfume though. Well, anyway, let's... yeah, perfume just <laughs> masks the stink. <laughs> Ask Josh how he knows. Um, all right, so <laughs> so he climbed to an altitude of approximately thirty two hundred feet. He swiftly cut the rope that kept him and the parachute tethered to the balloon, and he plunged. Licked his cigarette. Yep. Detonated the Hindenburg style. Uh, (laughs) As the air rushed into the parachute, it forced the silk canopy open, transformed that plummet into a somewhat more graceful descent. Now, as you... Jellyfishing like a motherfucker. As you so quickly pointed out, they didn't have a vent at the top. This was a feature that was added later to improve stability. So he oscillated wildly on his way down, but nevertheless, yeah. he landed safely in Parc Moncure, much to the astonishment of onlookers who figured it'd be a uh, precursor, a, a prequel, if you will, to the 1912 Eiffel Tower death jump. But this jump paved the way for the use of parachutes for emergency exits from aircraft, and eventually, what you and I like to do today, Josh... So uh, just as a fun aside as well, he ended up eventually getting like 200 parachute jumps in his lifetime, including one in England from 8,000 feet. And his wife, Gianna Genevieve Garnerin, who I can only imagine was a total smoke show, became the first woman to make a parachute Stinky jump. Stinky smoke show. <laughs> she uh, jumped from 3,000 feet on October 12th, 1799. Hell yeah. Oh my god. What, what year was this first jump? Uh 1790, sorry, seven, yeah, 1797. Oh my god. He was yeah, born in 69 it. and he jumped in 97 for the first time at 28. I just think about anything air sports related as like being part of the common era. This is like Victorian era. <laughs> yeah. That's it just seems so far removed from us. And I know that they were, you know, dabbling with balloons, but it's crazy to think about the first parachute jump documented at least happening like back in the age of mechanical automatons and yeah. Uh, yeah. chastity belts on everyone. It's it's crazy to, when you read about these like real real pioneers i mean history like we haven't even i didn't i hadn't heard of this guy like i found this off top basically out of curiosity like who did the first parachute jump and it took almost a hundred years for parachutes to develop any serious purpose thanks to good old world war one so there was pretty much no development for a century and it kind of reminds me of joseph kittinger who you know basically jumped from space in the 1960s and he had that record for like 50, 60 years, like even with all like how aerospace technology and skydiving, like how everything changed in that time frame and how quickly he still held the record until like what the 2020s or 2010s. Like that's insane to me. Yeah, it took Red Bull to come along to beat that record and they basically just beat it just to see if they could. It had, it had no practical application. I met Joseph Kittinger once at, uh, it was like 2005, maybe. He oh, came did you really? Did a, yeah, he came and did a talk at Mile High during one of the boogies. It was oh, that's really so awesome. cool. I mean, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, it was really cool. And it, with 
meeting him, same thing, like with this guy, this this stinky French dude that <laughs> blew up his balloon to the first sky first parachute jump. Man, it really like brings to light how much you don't want to be a pioneer, especially in air sports, <laughs> anything aeronautic related. It's just like because even today there are, uh, you know, there are test jumpers for like performance designs uh, when they're testing out new canopy designs and new deployment techniques and things. And to me, that seems like you have to be like a little bit of a madman to do that job, even today. Because to me, like skydiving, what makes it so alluring is that the the gear is so well designed. There's so many redundant safety features built into everything. And ultimately, and most commonly, whenever a mistake or an accident happens, it's piloting error. So it really all comes down to like your performance. And very rarely are you in a scenario where you feel like your gear is going to fail you. It just almost doesn't happen. And when it does, it's an anomaly that everyone hears about, but test jumping or this kind of stuff, like this guy had no basis for even assuming this would work. You know, it yeah. was all, I'm, I'm assuming it was, it was just fly by the seat of your pants. And, uh, this is back when they didn't know what flying was and they barely knew what pants were. So I imagine <laughs> that that was a pretty, uh, sketchy proposition. Yeah. And yeah. Like the idea of being a test jumper today make just kind of like makes me break out in cold sweat. So I can't even imagine the amount of bravery that'd be required in the 1700s, man. <laughs> yeah. They had barely discovered steam engines. <laughs> It's insane. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this it's is way crazy. You know, to be like the at the cutting edge of this stuff, that's probably why that guy that jumped off the Eiffel Tower, like he thought he might have been like flying like a wingsuiter. Like that's definitely what it, I've seen that video as. Uh, like Harold uh, is like the first wingsuit jump. Watch a man <laughs> plummet to his doom. <laughs> why? Why did people talk like that back then? What was that? Know. What were they doing? Uh, I don't know. They were, they had just discovered talking. That's how far <laughs> back that video was. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's crazy. Uh, Say this guy's name one more time uh, for me because I've already forgot and for the audience. Yeah, this is Andre Jacques Garnerin. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it, but you can find it based on that. And I'll link uh, the article. There's a couple different things online about it. Not a ton, but I found a really good article, and it has the picture that I sent Josh in it. So I'll link that in the show notes. Ah, oh, that's fascinating. I, I'd imagine, especially to all the people that listen to this show, because almost all of them, like you said, are skydivers or pilots. Yeah, skydivers. Awesome, Brett. That's, that's a great find. <laughs> that's really good. Nice. Well, uh, what's on your content circuit? Oh, since the last time I talked to you... Uh... Actually, yeah, two weeks ago, uh, quite a bit of content because this job allows me to indulge in my real profession of contentology studies. Um, so I finished my book. Uh, Pays the Horror bills. Star. It does pay the bills. Yeah. Uh, Horror Store finished that. Excellent. Uh, I'm watching Veep now. I'm kind of on like a comedy mockumentary streak. I don't know if you've seen Veep with uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, but man, it is funny. Only a few episodes. Yeah. 
Very bingeable. Yeah, it seems really hilarious. I think I'm going to pivot and turn to Fleabag, and, uh, which is kind of like a similar break in the fourth wall, like comedy, dark comedy drama. Um, but yeah, Veep is just so ridiculous. And so along the lines of like what we do in the shadows um, or like Arrested Development, kind of like, well, mostly because Buster plays the vice president oh yeah he is a bag man yeah oh god he's the best character hey brother <laughs> yeah i did love arrested development <laughs> yeah 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 buster is uh gary and veep and he's just uh whew. i don't know if he's the fan favorite but he's this fan's favorite i know brett's got two thumbs yeah, up right now that's it. I, I pointed to that's myself. a lot of thumbs yeah all yeah. of them i thought you're i thought you're pointing behind yourself <laughs> Is that a, a only thing new you've got? Yeah, that's pretty much yesterday. It. <laughs> that's pretty much it. But nice. I watched quite yeah, a few episodes. Really on a, yeah, you really are on a comedy kick right now. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, uh, how about you? Hey, have you seen? Have you seen? Nope. Oh, uh, yeah, it's a uh, alien thriller from uh, Jordan Peele. Yeah, 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 yeah. I. Uh, I don't know why. Like it, it was on Amazon Prime. There was no reason for me to not watch it. I probably didn't watch it because like, ah, it's too easy. They're just giving it to me. Pfft, can't be that good. Although I should have known better because Jordan Peele's awesome. Like Get Out, I love to Get Out. And uh, I watched a uh, uh, Kill Count on the the Dead Meat YouTube channel, which I've talked about oh, yeah. a little bit on here. Yeah, you've definitely mentioned hosted that by James A. Janice. Yeah, it's like a comedy horror show where he. He uh he counts off the kills in all our favorite horror movies, and he did one for Nope, and I didn't really know what it was about, and I watched like a third of it, and I was like, man, this seems really interesting. I should not watch the rest of this kill count, because he basically goes through the entire show, the entire movie, and then I went and watched Nope, and man, that movie is so awesome. Such a, such a cool take on uh, alien fiction, and it was not at all what I was expecting. What you know, specifically? Like, uh, I don't want to go too much into it. Oh, you don't? Okay, I was going to ask... Well, I mean, I don't want to go yeah. too much into spoilers, but yeah, what's your question? Well, I wanted to ask what the you think is the unique take specifically. Are you talking about the alien itself or the extraterrestrial? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, like, I thought just, that was just pretty the, cool. The whole mythology around the alien, like what it is, what it does, what it actually is, you know, because... Yeah. I had a lot of misconceptions going into it because in uh, previews, you just see like little snippets of what's going on. Like you see like the alien ship flying in the clouds and you don't really ever get a, a real sense of what it is. And then at the end when it's fully revealed, it was just like one of the most incredible designs I think that I've seen as far as like alien fiction and alien design. So I was really impressed with Nope and just like the, the writing, the acting and like the kind of, sort of like non-conventional horror movie very it's almost like really not scary yeah it's not really scary but it can we can we talk about the I monkey mean, maybe, scene because that is one of the most horrifying things i've ever seen depicted on any, in any format yeah that's that is pretty much like the scariest part of the whole movie yeah. and i didn't realize that was even part of it i like how with that you know they they really only give you kind of like glimpses of what's happening and then they give you a few little uh, shots of like the aftermath, but you're able to put together everything that happened with this monkey tearing people's faces off. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was really disturbing. Based on a true story um, too. That, that part of it. 
Yeah. I mean, sort of. Not like not like in the same context that Note presents it, but yeah, people have definitely had their fingers and faces and genitals ripped off by pet monkeys before. Yeah. So I would highly suggest that. Um, I also watched Doctor Sleep, which is a sequel to The Shining, and again, this I was watching The Kill Count, and he did one on Doctor Sleep, and I was like, this is probably not a movie I'll ever really watch because I like The Shining, but I'm, I wasn't like a huge fan of it. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of really cool mythology in Doctor Sleep that people, Shining fans, are kind of torn on. Like some people like the follow up to the shining and some people think that it expanded the universe too much and it took away a lot of the the mystery that made th- made Stanley Kubrick's the shining specifically so uh intriguing and it's uh so Stephen King notoriously did not like Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. He thought that it didn't like do his book justice and he liked the mini series on TV which is like not as good, obviously, as something Stanley Kubrick made. Uh, yeah. But the miniseries followed the book a little bit more religiously. And so he wrote a follow-up. I think it was released in, like, 2011 or something. And it, it does expand, like, the mythology of The Shining. And one of the concepts that I thought was cool that people didn't like, but to me, I, I kind of like this expanded universe stuff, was uh, – so – the, the shine is basically like the, the psychic power that people have in the shining. They're able to communicate telepathically and, and like in Danny's case in the shining, he can see the ghosts at the overlook, mm. but people, people that have this shine, they kind of like, they stick out to these, uh, there are these psychic vampires that consume, they call it steam. It's basically like when they kill someone that has the shine, it's like their soul escaping their body and there's more of this seam or this soul power that comes out of someone with, with the shining. And so these vampires who are pretty much just like normal people, but they can extend their life into immortality by consuming the steam. And so they're hunting down people with the shining specifically kids. So they're like going around hunting down children across the U S killing them and eating their steam. And it's like, it's that, and what's cool about the movie is that it is it kind of acts as a direct sequel to not just Stephen King's book The Shining but also to Stanley Kubrick's movie. So like the the first maybe 2 thirds of the movie is like a direct sequel to the St- Stephen King novel and then the last bit is they create like a a one-to-one recreation of the Overlook, and then the final part of the movie takes place in the Overlook, so it serves as like a, a sequel to Stanley Kubrick's film. That sounds really is, interesting. Yeah, it's really cool. I mean, it's definitely a juggling act, especially since those two things exist uh, kind of opposed to each other, the Stephen King novel and the Stanley Kubrick film. Hmm. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, I. Uh, it, you know what it kind of reminds me of a little bit is the... Uh, those it, it was like the Matrix animated series, like spinoffs. They were like standalone episodes that Mikey um, Animatrix. Yeah, Animatrix. Exactly. It kind of it kind of reminds me of something like that, like a very like unique project that sort of expands on a universe a little bit and like acts as a sequel. But it's like a standalone. But uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. Interesting. I'd never heard of that before. Well, if you like The Shining, you should check it out. I'd recommend it. I actually really like that movie. 
I mean, I don't love being terrified, but The Shining is very good. And, uh, you know, Jack Nicholson is iconic when he's busting through your bathroom wall with an axe. And really not that scary, honestly, as far as a horror movie goes. It's kind of tame. It's no Evil Dead, which is my new barometer for horror. (laughs) Yeah. Well, okay. so where would the um, the Exorcist, the OG Exorcist be on? On your scale there. I don't know. I always get kind of offended when people say their favorite horror movie is The Exorcist. I'm like, come on. That's like, that's just such a cop out answer. But it's, it's kind of pretty scary. scary. I, guess. I guess. Yeah, it's uh, I'd say it's maybe like a six or seven. Okay. For, on a scale from one to one to Evil Dead, it's a it's a solid exorcist. OK, got it. <laughs> Does that help? Perfect. Clear as mud. Yeah. Love hope it. That clarified it. Yeah. All right. Well, why don't we take a quick break and then when we come back, we'll get into some content. Ooh, content. Clear it out. Josh, it's amazing to me that we can be thousands of miles apart, but content will always bring us together. And I can't wait to hear what content you've brought us here to investigate together Um, as well. Well, I've been prepping it for a month, so (laughs) I hope it's good. Uh, So I recently read an article claiming that 2009 was the greatest year in cinema for sci-fi ever. What? (laughs) It listed several amazing movies, Avatar for one, which everyone already knows that we love since we covered it in one of our early episodes. Also, Moon, starring Sam Rockwell, came out that year, which is a very good movie. Watchmen, which kind of helped kickstart the gritty sci-fi superhero genre, along with Nolan's Batman, of course. And, oh, God, Brett, don't get me started on Batman again. This could get derailed immediately if we start talking about Batman. Yeah, let's do it. Also, the Star Trek reboot, which I'm not a huge Star Trek fan, but you can't discount the cultural impact of that franchise, and those movies were very awesome. Cool skydiving scene in the first one. Yeah, yeah. Also, the animated film Nine, which I haven't seen, but apparently features a post-apocalyptic Earth populated by sentient robots hunting each other down. That sounds pretty good. I mean, they pretty much had me at post-apocalyptic Earth. <laughs> Definitely. To see this place, just a, a ball of a ball of flame. How have we not and, seen that uh, movie? Speaking, it sounds familiar, I but I don't I've think seen I've seen the, it. Uh, I've seen the cover of it. I know exactly what it looks like, but I've never watched it. Yeah. And uh, speaking of Nine, 2009 marked the release of one of my favorite sci-fi films, a little underrated gym titled District Nine. And I'm assuming you've seen District Nine, right, Brett? Oh, my gosh. This is going to be the greatest episode of the Content Clearinghouse history. I, (laughs) I was going to ask if District Nine came out in 2009. Because that is abs- ah, that's it's this is one of my favorite movies of all time, dude. You know, you know it's this, so right? Good. Hopefully, I've got a lot of uh, a lot of facts that you've never heard before. Oh, I can't wait! And for for anyone who hasn't seen District Nine, one WT fuck, and two, come on, guys, what the WT fuck? You haven't seen District Nine yet? I'm assuming everyone's seen this, but that shouldn't stop you from listening to this. In fact, I know. When I listen to podcasts that are talking about something that I already love, I'm like 100% on board right from the beginning. So for anyone who has not seen District 9, I'll give you a synopsis. 
Actually, before I do that, Brett, let me ask you a question. Uh huh. You ready? Yeah. How racist are you? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! What's funny? We were we were just talking about on the van uh, going out and eating in Japan. I love Japan. I love the Japanese. And uh, the captain was like, have you been turned away yet? And in all my years of flying to Japan, um, usually they make it pretty clear if it's a Japanese only restaurant. And um, but I I walked in. This was when people were still wearing masks. I think it was last year. So, you know, it was still very much like mask heavy culture. I walk into a yakitori restaurant. I am smelling those meats. I'm ready to sit down and dig in. I just love Japanese cuisine. I take my mask off and I got the X. Nope, nope, we don't serve your kind here. Oh, yeah, but it's oh, it's man. interesting because like Star Wars Cantina. <laughs> it's interesting because I don't think of the Japanese as racist. I think of like I don't fully understand their culture, but they're very protective of their own culture, right? Like I, I don't know. It's I mean it's it, you could argue that. Uh, it's like a it's a type of racism, but it's uh, I don't know. I feel like I'm avoiding your question. I don't think I'm very racist, but I'm sure I have all the inherent biases from the ancient wiring that we've had for a long time. But I believe all humans deserve equal rights. Uh, d- doesn't matter what your gender is. Doesn't matter what your race is. None of that. Doesn't matter what your sexuality Good answer, is. Brett. Equal rights for all humans. Sounds like, sounds like you only feel like this extends to humans. Now let me ask you another question. Oh God, how speciest are you? Oh God, I should have known this is where this was going. <laughs> like how much oh better God. you think you are than other species? Oh God, I, I like if an I have alien no species I'm gonna plead the fifth came on this. down to Earth. <laughs> And they were stranded. Would you get on board with subjugating them and exploiting them for their technology? Yes? No? I'm going to take that as a no. If that's a no, Brett, then you're better than the human bureaucracy in District 9. Oh, Look God. at you being all bureaucracyist. <laughs> this is a per- so, this is a great way to start this episode. Because this, that, like that? that movie, the movie really is, you know, I mean, I'm sure you're going to get into how it takes place in South Africa and it's like an apartheid, uh, apartheid, um, like metaphor, essentially, or like a way of oh, exploring what? that apartheid. Oh, no, I didn't. I didn't know. I didn't realize that at all. Oh, you did searching this. <laughs> yeah, of course I did. <laughs> I'm so tired. <laughs> I can't wait to listen to this episode and cringe at hearing me talk about the Japanese kicking me out of their establishment. <laughs> well, District 9 is Neil Blomkamp's feature film directorial debut. It's shot in a documentary style. Man, we've been on this documentary thing the last few episodes. And it takes place in an alternate reality Earth where in 1982 an alien race known colloquially as the prawns, makes contact with humanity and subsequently becomes stranded in Johannesburg, South Africa, where their ship lacks fuel for the return trip to their planet. The prawns are herded into a huge, rundown, and poverty-stricken refugee camp known as District 9, mirroring South Africa's segregation of whites and blacks under the apartheid movement, which lasted from 1948 to the 1990s. 
Now, I didn't know a ton about apartheid other than the fact that it was institutionalized racism and segregation. So I read up on it, and Brett, it was not good. Yeah, apartheid yeah. was usually <laughs> never is when we um, treat uh, one section of the population better than another. It never ends up well, and it ripples uh, horribly throughout history, and it seems to be a really difficult thing to unwind even hundreds of years later. And it seems somehow ingrained into human nature because it just keeps happening over and over. You know, that's that is something I, I do want to point point out something out about this that is a little disheartening. Uh, that is actually exactly one of the points that um, Yuval Noah Harari makes in Sapiens is that there's never been a human culture in history that hasn't had some sort of hierarchy relationship where there's one group of people that's considered like in a higher status or a higher class and basically trotting on the backs of another group of people. The interesting thing is it doesn't have to be race. Um, you know, there's other like mechanisms at play and his kind of theory is that it's usually just a happenstance. Like it's something like economic or it's like a political decision or something weird happens and then the the racism or the xenophobia or the religious persecution, whatever it is, is a way to explain why they're treating a group of people the way they're treating them. So like his theory, and I'm sure that I'm getting this all wrong, but his theory was that like in the United States, to use it as an example, the, the institutions were trying to portray black people as being less than because they had just basically seized the economic advantage of the African slave trade that was already in place. So it was like an app. The racism was almost an afterthought to the economics. And this happens like again and again in history. And you see like these countries in Europe where, you know, their race is mixed. They don't have any sort of like views on skin color, but then it's like, Oh, the religions, Oh, like you're this, I'm that. And they just, oh my gosh. It just like, it never seems, according to Yuval Noah Harari, it hasn't happened once where people are actually treated with, with uh, equal rights. And he's a humanist like me. He believes that everybody deserves to have the same rights. Uh, but we just like haven't seen that play out in society yet, which is really fucking sad. It does seem part of our ancestral DNA, unfortunately. So the way that it uh, the way that it applies to this movie is, I mean, it's an apartheid metaphor, and uh, so when I was looking into apartheid, I read that it was separated into two categories: petty apartheid, which segregated public shopping and entertainment venues. And Grand Apartheid, which dictated housing and employment opportunities by race. So the first apartheid laws restricted mixed-race marriages, followed by morality laws that prohibited mixed-race sexual relationships. In the 1950s, the Population Registration Act required all citizens to register as either white, black, colored, or Indian, which further restricted social and legal status among the population of South Africa. And in the 1960s, Black citizens started to be evicted from their homes and relo relocated to black only's area, uh, black only areas, and one such area 
and an area that was cited as inspiration for District 9 was the 6th Municipal District of Cape Town, or District 6. This was an area where many former slaves settled in the 1830s, and then in the 1960s, the apartheid government of South Africa declared District 6 whites only and relocated over 30,000 black citizens to an area known as Cape Flats, which had one of the highest crime rates in all of South Africa. So it's extremely oppressive with really no concern to the black population's rights or even just their standing as humans. And these themes run strong through District 9. Like when the movie starts, the prawns have been living in squalor for the last 20 years, forced to live in a filthy crime-ridden refugee camp known as District 9. And the government has decided to relocate them to a new camp, pretty much mirroring the story I just told. And uh, this camp is outside of town, and they use a paramilitary group known as Multinational United or MNU to forcibly handle that relocation. I'm having flashbacks of all the times I've watched this movie. (laughs) It's such a great movie. So good. So an inept bureaucrat, Ficus Vandemeva, played by Charlton Copley in his first feature film role, leads the charge. Insane. One piece of... A piece of trivia I found on Prime, which if you're not watching movies on Prime, man, you're missing a lot of context because you can just expand the trivia box and you get all kind of awesome facts. Like, for instance, if you're writing a content-based show, you can mine the (laughs) shit out of Prime, which I do all the time. Yeah, the x-ray feature. Uh, It's pretty cool. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So a piece of trivia I saw on there said that the last name Vandemeva is almost a derogatory name in South Africa. It's like shorthand for a person that's an idiot. So Neil Blomkamp really knew what he was doing. He was making a statement about Vickis's ineptitude in his job when he named him. And at first, Vickis displays a low-level distaste for the prawns, but through a clumsy series of events, he's exposed to alien chemicals that start to mutate his body into a prawn. And this kicks off the story as Vickis has to pursue alliances amongst the prom population and eventually he comes to understand their goals as he becomes an accomplice and then eventually a friend of their species and it is a dark commentary on humanity that genetic manipulation of the mind and body into the target of sympathy is required before before sympathy can truly exist for a vicus that's that's what's wild right that's like that's yeah oh my god like i i think we can achieve empathy without like you know walking um you know 100 miles in somebody else's shoes or whatever the common cliche is but it it certainly seems to be extremely difficult for the vast majority of everyone yeah like racism looks even more ridiculous in light of this since racism on earth is based on nothing more significant than how efficiently your skin can absorb vitamin d from sunlight and yeah. that, that's merely a product of where your ancestors evolved. 100%. Like if, yep. if aliens came to Earth and they lacked the tech advantage that fiction always affords them, it's certain that they would eventually be subjugated by the short-sighted nature of humanity. And unfortunately, I don't think it would require the apartheid-minded government of District 9 South Africa to propose such an approach. I feel like that would simply be part of humanity's segregational programming. I mean, the the fact, too, that they have, like, an insect-like appearance, like, is so, like, it would be so easy to, like, dehumanize a species that looks like a, like an insect, like a scary insect. 
you know, as opposed yeah, to like have to a cuddly them teddy, they're not teddy human. bear. R- r- yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Or just uh, it's also yeah. It's very interesting that 2009 saw the release of two movies where humans are played as the bad guys against the aliens, like Avatar, where humans are represented as the invading alien species, and District 9, where the roles are reversed, but the oppression still comes from the human side. Like, I wonder what was in the public consciousness in the late 2000s that brought this oppressive human nature to the forefront of our media. Like, maybe that's when humanity really started to wake up to its own shitty tendencies. Yeah, I mean, wow. You, you think it took till 2009 for us to realize, what about the 1940s? Didn't we realize that humans had the, like, horrible, uh, you know, the capability to be horrible back then? Or were we just easily disconnecting ourselves from it and saying, like, oh, that's somebody else. I would never let that happen, as opposed to the reality of it, which is any culture, any you know, any anyone from anywhere under the right circumstances could do horrible things if we're not careful and not aware of our shortcomings as a species. I think it probably just goes in waves, honestly. I feel like there's some really terrible event and then everyone's like, never again, and then you get too far away from it. And then people are like, oh, we can start sub- subjugating again. Interesting. That, yeah. It wasn't that bad last time. It just keeps going back and forth, back huh. and forth. Interesting. So... For all this discussion and admittedly limited history lesson on apartheid, you might assume that this movie is a quiet meditation on apartheid <laughs> politics with aliens as a stand-ins for the oppressed minorities in South Africa. This is a sci-fi action flick, buddy. It just happens to be yeah. one with something to say. Yeah, the tech is awesome. And a big part of that, yeah, a big part of that is because of its director, Neil Blomkamp. Yeah. Do you know much about him? No, so I heard a rumor about this movie, and I've it's this has literally been on my content list to cover at some point. So I'm so glad you're doing it. I feel like to it, man. You did delete it. it. Yeah, it's it's getting uh, taken off the list, uh, but added to the rewatch list immediately. I think it's actually on Madeline and I's uh, TV and movie list that we have going on right now, which is very long. Um, But no, so I heard a, a rumor about this that they actually had. Like the production and the budget was earmarked to make a video game adaptation movie. And then they like pivoted at the last second. And this is what they made District 9. Is is there any truth to that? Does that sound familiar? Stick around, bro. Oh, okay. (laughs) That's pretty much all I know about Neil Blomkamp and the behind the scenes. So he was born in Johannesburg in 1979, same age as me. I always hate it when people who are my same age are so much more (laughs) successful than me. Man, I'm blowing it. But he moved to Vancouver when he was 18 to attend the Vancouver Film School where he learned to be a cinematic genius apparently. And uh, he said – there was a Joe Rogan episode I actually listened to. I realized that he had interviewed him a few years ago and – he said on this Joe Rogan episode that growing up in South Africa heavily influenced his filmmaking, obviously. Like the racist aspects come through in District 9, and the wealth inequality comes through in Elysium. He also stated that he didn't feel like he had an obligation to get this stuff out for any social reasons, but he just wants to reflect the world through his eyes, and these concepts heavily influence his life growing up. And before... District 9 was created, he made a short film called Alive in Joburg, which I'll share in the show notes. 
And uh, that explores the concepts from District 9, Aliens Stranded in Johannesburg. And in that short film, he interviewed real citizens about the illegal aliens that were migrating to South South Africa, people who the citizens thought were stealing job opportunities, and the locals answered very honestly and candidly. And then he intercut those interviews with real people about actual people that were moving to their city with the footage of these prawn precursor creatures that he created for Alive in Joburg, making oh, it seem like the people that he were interviewing were talking about the aliens in the film. And I mean, it like pretty much works flawlessly. And when you know that, you're like, oh, wow, this really like is a statement about how messed up it must be there, you know? That is some fascinating and, uh, social commentary. That is awesome. What an amazing idea. Yeah. I mean, it's it's disturbing that they're saying these things about real people. It also helps you understand their POV a little bit when you remove the idea of it being real people that they're discussing and replace them with fictional aliens. Yeah. It's like a very strange dichotomy and very interesting disconnect from reality. Man, Neil Blomkamp is a genius. And he did that when he was like a kid. Yeah, yeah, so interesting. Before District 9, in 2006-2007, Neil Blomkamp was chosen to direct the Halo film, the movie you're talking about, okay. with Peter Jackson and Weta Digital uh, from uh, Lord of the Rings fame. And that film, unfortunately, fell through as financing dried up. And what became of it was a series of shorts that became the seven-minute-long Halo Landfall. It's a, it was a, a short film that was compiled from these little vignettes he made that were used as commercials for Halo 3. But uh, Peter Jackson was so impressed with Neil Blomkamp's vision and commitment to realistic effects work and a cinema verite style of filming and if you aren't sure what cinema verite means, it's essentially a realistic handheld, almost like documentary style of, of uh, approach to filming things like this, like action films. And uh, I mean, I guess you could probably apply it to, you know, the comedies that we've been discussing lately as well, like that handheld style. And that is present throughout everything he's made. Like he has a, a way of combining extremely realistic effects with very non-cinematic shots, like images from news helicopters and rubble and foreground elements obscuring the shots and shaky, like almost intentionally unimpressive camera work. It's a very cool signature style, but we'll discuss more of that later when we talk about the effects work. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. So needless to say, Peter Jackson was impressed, and he decided to act as a producer for Neil Blomkamp to expand Alive in Joburg for a feature film piece, which became District 9. Which did, I I suppose, with four Academy Award nominations for Best Picture, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Visual Effects, and Best Film Editing. And that was just the, the first movie he ever made. It didn't, it didn't win any of those, but I mean, it seems like it's just an honor to be nominated, what I, from what I hear. Wow. So, he... He's gone on to direct Elysium, Chappie, Demonic, which is a movie that came out during the pandemic, which I still need to watch. And then also recently Gran Turismo, which is a uh, another – it's a video game adaptation of a racing, uh, racing game. But apparently Gran Turismo looks pretty interesting because I think it's like a true story of a, of a real life uh, – it was like a video game Gran Turismo player – that was recruited to actually race in real life because of like his performance in the game. 
That's what the the trailers make it seem like, which seems pretty interesting. That's very interesting. Wow. Seems pretty cool. Yeah. And what's weird from the trailers is it does not look like a Neil Blomkamp film. It doesn't look like it's shot with that cinema verite style. So it'd be interesting to see what his take is on like a like on a true like super slick blockbuster. Yeah. And also Oats Studio. Have you have you seen or heard of yes. Oats Studio? Yes, I have. Yep. That's a Neil Blomkamp uh, production company that deals exclusively in shorts that explore sci-fi concepts with the p- potential of expanding them into feature-length films. Interesting. And several of his feature-length films have starred Charlto Copley. So Neil Blomkamp's career has actually been tied pretty closely with the star of this film, Charlto Copley. Wait, and speaking and who, of Charlto and, Copley, yeah, who is he? that? So he's he is Vickis Vandermeer. Oh, Vickis. Okay. Don't you just don't you just hate it when a rare talent is plucked from obscurity and thrust into the role of a person whose fan club you were in without even knowing it? Because <laughs> I, I don't. I love it when that happens. Uh, yeah, I love it too. I love being in a great actor's fan club. That's exactly what happened with this guy. So Neil Blomkamp met Shelto Copley when uh, Neil Blomkamp was 16 years old. Copley was working for a production company and had access to computers with editing and 3D software. And he let Blomkamp use those computers in return for creating 3D graphics for some of Shelto Copley's use in like pitches for projects that he wanted to do. And that started a friendship that resulted in Neil Blomkamp ca- casting him first in Alive in Joburg as sort of like a background character, and then eventually as Vickis in District 9 that set Charlotte Copley off on a very successful acting career. Wow. So there was awesome. a screen test for uh, Peter Jackson with Charlotte Copley. I feel like I'm saying these names a lot, but uh, it was just like a, a proof of concept of the character, and Peter Jackson liked. Copley's performance so much that he just said, just cast him as Vickis. Cause I, I guess after he saw, I mean, it, now it's like an iconic performance. He's just like, well, obviously I can't even imagine this character being any other way. Like it needs, just needs to be this guy playing a hundred percent. Yeah. He's so believable in uh, like his relationship and his job and his like interactions with the sort of like jarhead uh, military types that are relocating all the prawns. Like, Yeah. He really knocks it out of the park with that performance. Like he really starts off in this film as like a simpleton, like a person you feel sorry for because he just doesn't seem like he's on the same level as all the people around him. But at the same time, he's so anxious to please his superiors that he's willing to undertake this horrific mission to evict the prawns from their home in, home in District 9, forcibly if necessary, resulting in several of them dying along with his exposure to the alien chemical that really sets off the plot. And he's so good at playing like a Weasley bureaucrat that you almost forget that he's like a legitimate action star. It's like such awesome acting, just like the range that he portrays in this film. How does it, when he gets home and the like surprise party's going on, and does he like puke on the cake? Is that what happens or... Something like really gross that you're just like, oh, like it's so cringy and believable. Yeah, he pukes up like gross black bile. And then yeah. he's like, oh, I've got to get to the bathroom. And then surprise. And yeah. Then, like, they, all the, <laughs> yeah, all the people right. are there. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> oh, my God. I guess so the good. plot ramps up in this. Like he really flexes his, act- his action chops in a variety of shootouts and mech piloting scenes and all crazy 
kinds of crazy sci-fi shenanigans. Yeah. And he's gone on to star in a ton of awesome movies, including just about everything Neil Blomkamp has made, as well as the A-Team remake and Hardcore Henry, which is an action movie shot entirely in first-person perspective. Oh, Have you wow. seen that? Have you seen no. Hardcore Henry? I have not. Oh, actually, maybe it's, I have. Was that like a Netflix original? Something like that? I don't know who made it initially, okay. but it's basically like first-person shooter video game, the movie. Yeah. Which is weird to have like a big star as the as the star because you never really see him. You see his arms and legs. Right, right. It's pretty interesting though. Yeah, I think I did see that. I thought it was pretty good too. Yeah, like his presence on screen and Neil Blomkamp's presence behind the camera is winning formula from beginning to end. So now we know one of the reasons, two of the reasons that this movie is so awesome. We should talk about the other star of this film, which is the effects and why this movie hits different than just about any other film that isn't made by Neil Blomkamp. It's so it's something else lot, for sure. It really is. Like it just seems so real. And a lot of this information comes from uh, a video on a YouTube channel, uh, CGY. And uh, the guy that made this video, he states, I'll share the link in the show notes, but he states that usually in a VFX laden blockbuster, the effects are typically planned out in meticulous detail before any shooting even begins. And because of this, the VFX, when incorporated, tend to take on almost like a synthetic feeling because everything from the lighting, the performance, the framing, everything revolves around making them work in post-production. And since they are so meticulously worked around, oftentimes they don't feel like they exactly fit on the screen with everything else. They may have like a very technical and precise look, but still feel like they're slightly superimposed over the footage. I mean, this is like kind of like how Marvel films are devolving, I feel like these days, where it's just like, you almost just feel like you're watching a cartoon with like two real people in the foreground, you know? Interesting. And yeah, Neil Blomkamp wanted to flip that on its head. Like he wanted to shoot without having to worry about the VFX at all and then add them seamlessly into the footage later, which I'm sure is a his effects artist hated, but uh, understating the importance of them and incorporating them into the cinema verite style that we discussed earlier. And this idea really does define his movies. Like I almost never feel like I'm watching a VFX shot when there are aliens or spaceships or unrealistic electricity infused explosions on screen. And this is why, because he approached it like from the opposite direction. He didn't even worry about the effects and he was like, well, I trust my artists and they're going to be able to make it work. Wow. Do you, you kind of know what I'm talking about when you watch his, fi- watch his films? It doesn't seem like an effects film. This is, I mean, this is one of the movies that kind of like defined my love of science fiction. Like it was definitely on like my top 10 movie, like all time favorite movies list for a very long time. And when I first saw it, this was like back in the day of like DVD players. And I would like, rewind and rewatch certain action scenes like over and over and over because they looked so good and I couldn't believe what I was watching. So yeah, that's an interesting point though that you make a comparison with Marvel movies because it does look like everything is just so CG heavy and it looks great, but it looks cartoonish and this, this looks a hundred percent real. Like it could be a documentary. There are shots like on the prawns close up where you're like, is that they? Did they do this practically? Because there's no way they could have. They're they're too expressive. They move too much. But it doesn't look like you're seeing CGI. 
and like the the way the ship is superimposed in the background like they obscure a lot of it with haze and foreground elements just things that you wouldn't typically see in a movie like this because they put the effects like on a pedestal which he never does like his effects are never on a pedestal they're they're given like the same the same weight as like Vicus or Kubis or the cars they're driving in or the helicopters anything would be you know it's like it all it all just fits seamlessly into the world and you know like effects are like cut off on the sides or the tops of frame or cropped or out of focus like he treats the aliens and their tech as just things that exist in the world as not as something that should be elevated above any other element in the film yeah i don't know that a lot of the scenes that like feature the weapons and just how advanced and that's like one of the interesting dichotomies too that you have in the storyline is that they treat these prawns like you know they're idiots basically like they you know oh like they're these are just uncultured like interstellar bugs. aliens right yeah, right interstellar and species and their their weapons their technology is so much better than anything the humans have and that's like a big plot point is like we can't use the weapons but the prawns can and the government's trying to like yeah. reverse engineer these amazing. This- I want that arm. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god! Another scary well, character. There's so guy, many scary characters. This guy CGY in this uh, this page. He actually points out that one of the few places where he does elevate the effects is with the weapons. Like there'll be these epic shots of like like the electricity infused explosions that just like the camera will linger on them for a long time. It's like. It's like he really knew that he had something special with those explosions. And it's interesting that for some reason he decided to elevate those just a little bit. But it's not enough ever to take you out of it. You still never question that you're looking at something real. Yeah. And they didn't follow any of the rules of standard VFX shots. They didn't use motion control cameras or pre-playing camera movements. Or they didn't shoot clean plates of backgrounds to fill in the gaps once they had CG Uh, cgi characters like usually if they're going to put cgi characters in they'll shoot two they'll shoot the scene twice once with like the the uh actor that's portraying the character in like a uh performance capture suit and then they'll shoot the same scene again without that person so they can use that clean plate as the background to fill in the spots around where they've removed the human actor and they didn't do that at all he just shot it all handheld with the intention of fixing it in post. Wow. And usually that's a recipe for disaster. Not this to start time. with, they had not this time at all. Not any time he's ever done this. Yeah. So to start with, they had one actor on set, Jason Cope, who played all the aliens. Then when animating the aliens, the effects houses, image engine and animatrix used this human performance as a basis for the alien movements but then added these sharp secondary motions like facial tics and arm and leg movements that would be unnatural for humans, like too fast or too sharp to give the aliens a more alien feel. And on their faces, they incorporated tentacles and hard exoskeleton pieces to make their emotions hard to read. But underneath it was all driven by an animation rig based on a human face. So partial human emotions could be glimpsed under the alien surface features. And those design choices helped to alienate the viewers at first but then helped us sympathize with them as we get a closer look at them through vicus's eyes yeah wow and then to perfectly incorporate the effects into neil blomkamp's hectic footage the animation houses 
use newly refined camera tracking and lighting software to match up the effects with the erratic camera movements. Oftentimes having to brute force this process by going in and hand drawing backgrounds and rotoscoping out the actor, Jason Cope, tweaking lighting to make it all match seamlessly. So the Herculean efforts by these animation studios and the filming style that presented the effects in a way that Neil Blomkamp himself called banal really sold it to us as the audience. And uh, like we already discussed, like that one exception was the weaponry. Like he really made an effort to not make the, the weaponry banal at all. He wanted that stuff to be like totally over the, over the top. And the result of that is, I think like one of the most creative and original mech suits I've ever seen in a movie. Oh my gosh. One of the best. Yeah. That's a, that's a great point. Like everything just looks kind of like beat up, run down, like, it just totally fits into the environment that they're in. And then these weapons are just so overpowered. Yeah. The, the mech features one weapon that magnetically captures all the projectiles that are fired at it in a big ball levitating out in front of its hand. Yeah. And it fires them back at the enemies and just shreds the entire room. Like this exact magnetic weapon seems like the inspiration for an almost identical weapon in the game Titanfall, which finally, let me live out my District 9 mag- magnetic mech suit weapon fantasy like five years later after <laughs> District 9 came out. You'd really been letting that fantasy uh, foster internally for a long time. Oh, yeah. I mean, this it wasn't even fostering. I've watched this movie like probably three times a year. Just like kept coming back. Uh, there was an anima- uh, animatric article about the effects house. They said the, the early days of mocap and VFX showcased in such I- iconic films such as District 9 led us to the present where game engines and real-time rendering are entering the scene of movie making. So this movie and the VFX, uh, the tech it inspired in some ways led directly to the way like Mandalorian and the Batman were filmed using volumetric stages and backgrounds created in Unreal Engine 5. It's unbelievable for a film with a budget of only $30 million. Like for a comparison, the Batman, which features quite a a lot of the same tech and absolutely zero aliens or spaceships had a budget of $200 million. Wow. How much of that though went to Robert Pattinson's eyeshadow? Uh, That seems like at least a four or $5 million affair. (laughs) At least. Yeah. So it's a sad state of affair that in some ways it's easier for humans to relate to the plight of these inhuman aliens, the prawns, than it is with the people who looked essentially just like us with just slightly different packaging. Like the whole concept of oppression based on skin tone is so awful and sane, but it's such a, it's such a huge disgraceful part of our cultural history as humans. But that's why Films like District 9 are so important. Neil Blomkamp performed a magic trick with this film, first presenting the prawns as disgusting bottom feeders, criminals, and nuisances who we can't relate to. And then as Vickis slowly transforms, we are able to see the world through their eyes and they become a target of sympathy. 100%. And sci-fi has long been a medium to explore concepts that humanity faces currently, but with a different veneer, like a fictional detachment wrapped in fascinating futurism it's very effective at snagging people like me and i'm assuming people like you through that process 
it makes the reader or the viewer contemplate these complex issues and maybe just re reexamine fundamental uh, held beliefs of a population that might be hurtful or damaging or just wrong. Yeah. And that's exactly what this film does. And if you need any more encouragement, I found a film on everything wrong with it's a, it's a YouTube channel where they'll, I've seen that they'll break down <laughs> cinema yeah. sins. I think yep. that's what it's called. Uh, they did a everything wrong with uh, district nine and it's only three minutes long. Most of their videos are 15 to 20 minutes long. It's so good. Yeah. So no better time to revisit district nine than right now, especially with a sequel possibly looming on the horizon. Don't tease me like that. I feel like they've been talking about a sequel for decades. (laughs) They have, I found an article that said that it's, it's basically in pre-production. Like they have a script that they're working and they may have started casting already. So should watch District 9, watch all of Neil Blomkamp's films, check out Oat Studio. Pretty much some of the best sci-fi that's ever been created. Oh my gosh, Josh. I'm so glad that you talked about District 9. I mean, it is one of the best. Uh, I mean, it's like the perfect sci-fi. It's like the perfect science fiction movie. And I really like your take on it. That was very well said. I don't think that I could have, uh, like so expertly navigated all of the complex issues that that movie brings up in such a fantastic way. And the weapons. That's what a month of research will do for you. Yeah. Yeah. It's an amazing movie. Well, you don't have to sell me on that movie, but you did again. So congratulations on that. Uh, Thank you so much, Josh. Wow. Totally epic. Great movie. Great episode of the content clearing house and to our viewers. Um, if you liked the show, let us know. You can reach out to us on Instagram at the Content Clearinghouse. We also have an email, contentclearinghouse at gmail.com. We're on Discord. We have a link tree. Um, yeah, don't be afraid to reach out and say hello. And we really appreciate you listening to the show. Um, don't forget to subscribe. And we'll see you back here soon with some more content.